Hello. It's good to see you all. Now we're going to look at this really, really important passage of Scripture. So I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we look at this foundational part of your word, help us to hear what it has to say to us about what it means to be human beings, what it means to be men and women. Help us to hear what it has to say to you about you and your relationship to us. And so, Father, help me to teach it clearly, uh, but give us all ears to hear uh, and hearts that are ready to respond in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've started sort of caring more about my history, my, my heritage, where I come from. Uh, and I think that's why those, those websites like Ancestry.com do so well, because uh, people hit a time in their life that must be around the age I am, where uh, people start to care about that sort of thing and uh, they start being interested and looking it up. So a few years back when we went to England for my long service leave, we did all the normal stuff, you know, we went to the museums, we went to the castles, palaces, all that sort of thing, uh, went to Lord's Cricket Ground, went to Chelsea's home ground, all those, the important things. But I also arranged for us to go and stay in a place called Bradford in northern England. And now understand this, no tourist goes to Bradford. Uh, In the Lonely Planet guidebook, and this is a quote, it says, Bradford exists to make every other place you visit seem nicer. (laughs) How's that? But we went there. Uh, In 2021, it was voted the fourth worst place to live in England. But we went there. Uh, So not many people make a point of spending a couple of nights in Bradford. But I wanted to go there because it's where my mother came from. So uh, she came out to Australia when she was uh, a young girl and she came from Bradford. So we were going to England, so I wanted to go and see where my family came from. We went to the church where she was baptised, went to the house where she was born. In fact, it was quite funny when we got to the house where she was born, I went to park the car and uh, Victoria just said, we are not getting out of the car. Wind down the window, take a photo, tell your mother we've been here and let's go. Let's just say it wasn't the nicest part of a town that's already not well regarded. But anyway, uh, so anyway, I forced my family to, uh, to do all this sort of stuff. Why did I do that? It's because where we come from matters. Uh, there is just something, it just shapes us in some intangible way. Our heritage is like that, which is why Genesis chapter 2 is so important for us to understand. And I think it's vital for every person to understand because this is where we all came from. We come from all sorts of different countries, we come from all sorts of different cultural backgrounds, we all come from Genesis 2. So if you want to understand who you are, if you want to understand what it is to be a human being, if you want to understand what it is to be a man or a woman, you have to understand Genesis 2. That's how important this chapter is. So let's get into it. I hope you've got it there because we're going to be getting into it. Do put up your hand if you didn't get one of those Bibles that came around before and one of our friends will get there. But before we begin and as we start, I just want to reiterate the point I made a couple of weeks ago back when we started Genesis 1. Uh, And it's just the same as when I was talking about the seven days of creation in Genesis 1. I just want to say I'm not that interested in the debates people want to have about modern science and Genesis 2. Uh, And if that's sort of, if you've come wanting to hear that, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to that first talk, the podcast of the first talk on Genesis 1, where I talked about a few of those things. But having said that, I just want to make two quick points before we begin. And the first is this, Jesus and the New Testament treat Adam and Eve as real. And that is good enough for me. That's the first point I want to make. And I actually think there's a really, really helpful truth there 
Once you've come to know that Jesus is the Son of God, and in particular, once you've come to know that Jesus is risen from the dead, then his word goes. You see, that, that is actually the key question. Is Jesus who he says he is, and did he rise from the dead? Because if he is, and if he did, then that answers all the other questions. You see, people, when people sometimes come to me and they say, I'm really struggling to work out how to fit this bit of the Old Testament together with, with science and history, I say, look at Jesus first... And answer the question, that's the key question. If he rose from the dead, which is a question of known history, then that's the key thing. That's the key question. Because if he did, then you take his word on the rest. Because if he is the risen son of God, I'm going to listen to him. And I think it's very clear that Jesus and the New Testament require Adam and Eve to be real people. So I just want to say that first. Secondly, that leads to my other quick point, And that is, this is history, but it is richly symbolic. See, I kept making that point, if you remember back in Genesis 1, this is not a science textbook. Don't read it as a science textbook. And I think, sadly, when people try to use it in that way, it forces them to read Genesis 2 in a way that actually misses the rich theological points that Genesis 2 is making. This is history, but it's written to make fundamental theological truths about humanity, about God, about sin, about grace, about everything, really. Uh, and that's why I call it history that is richly symbolic. I think when you get that, you understand Genesis 2. Uh, now, as I said on Genesis 1, if you want to talk about all that sort of stuff, I'd love to talk to you. Put it on your feedback form. Some of you have been interacting with me on uh, emails and that sort of thing. That's great. I give you books to read or we can talk about it. But now, let's go and learn from the story of everyone's beginnings. So I've called it the story of humanity. And we're looking verses 4 to 17. So it begins at chapter 2, verse 4. Look with me. It says, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I want to draw just a couple of things out of that verse. The first is, you see the word there, records? It's literally the generations. See, what it is, chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 3, is like the big picture. It's the picture of how God created the heavens and the earth, this is the story of the generations. This is now the story of the people who God created to fill his creation. And what you're going to see as we go through, gener go through Genesis is every so often it'll say, here's the next generation, the generations of Noah, the generations of Abraham, and so forth. Well, here is the start of that. There's another interesting thing to see in that verse, and it's a change that happens between chapter 1 and this part of the story from chapter 2, verse 4. So if you look in there, up to now, flick back over chapter 1, up to now when it's talking about God, it's called him God, okay? And that, that in the Hebrew is a word Elohim, it's just the generic word for God, like our word God, really. So if, we, if you flick back over chapter 1 and up to chapter 2 verse 3, it says, you know, God did this and God said and so on and so forth. From verse 4, it switches and it gives God a different name. So in your English translation, it says, you see there, the Lord, with capital L-O-R-D, God. Why does it do that? Well, that's how they translate the name Yahweh, I am, which is the name God revealed himself by to, to Moses later on in the book of Exodus. So whenever you see that word Lord, God, in capitals, it's saying Yahweh, God. The, the, the name God has revealed himself by personally. Now, that is actually incredibly significant. 
It's so important because as we turn to God's creation of humanity, it seems to be making the point that God is not some distant, generic God. God is not some distant, generic figure in the sky. God is the personal God who wants to reveal himself to people. God is the personal God who loves us and cares for us and relates to his people. Please don't miss the significance of how wonderful that is. And so... That personal loving God creates mankind. Look from verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. We are not some random accident. That is the fundamental truth there of verse 7. We are not some random accident, the end product of, of all these random events. God formed us. Remember back to chapter 1, we are made in the image of God. God made us to be the pinnacle of his creation. But he formed us, look there at verse 7, from the dust. We are not immortal like God, we are part of his creation. In fact, the name Adam is actually a play in the original language on the word dust. If you know anyone called Adam, you call them Dusty from now on, that's their real name. But the point is, I think... When you grasp that, that we are made from dust, it should teach us to have a little bit of humility as human beings. So we remember this at funeral services. I have taken funeral services for people who are important and well-known, and that's where there are hundreds of people there, and I've taken funeral services where I'm the only person there, other than the bloke digging the grave. I've taken funeral services for important people and people who no one knows. But at all of them, I quote the Psalms, Whether they're important or forgotten, I quote the Psalms, we are but dust, and because of our sin, our days are numbered. Even the richest, most powerful person in the world came from the dust and returns to the dust. John Calvin, the great reformer, he says, oh, something's happened to that screen there. Anyway, I'll read it out for you. He says this, he says, the body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense to the end that no one should exalt beyond measure in his flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not here learn humility. I always like it when someone from 400 years ago says things like that. You see, his point is, we, we, we have to understand we're nothing special in that sense. In one sense, we are the same as the animals. We are creatures formed by God. But there's one thing different. The wonderful part of the verse, look again at verse 7, there's another part of it, and it's wonderful, where it then says, God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. You're actually meant to feel the intimacy of that. The image I have is like the lifesaver on the beach, you know, giving CPR to the person and breathing in to try and bring them back to life. But the problem is that that's quite a violent thing if you've ever seen that. It's quite an urgent thing. This is, this is meant to be intimate. It's meant to be beautiful God breathed life into Adam. It's more than that he made us alive. He breathed his breath. He breathed his spirit into us. It's a special act of love and it's part of that special place that God has given to humanity. We alone are made in the image of God. See, to understand ourselves, we have to grasp both sides of that coin. On the one hand, we are creatures. On the one hand, we're nothing special. We're we're formed from the dust. So be humble, like John Calvin said. But we are special 
at the same time, given life by God, we alone, of all God's creatures, are made in the image of God. And I want to say this, we have to say this over and over again. This is why we Christians value human life. See, human life is not something for us to give or take. It is God's to do that with. And it doesn't matter how unpopular it makes us as Christians, we stand against things like abortion. And we stand against things like euthanasia and anything that says human beings have the right to decide when someone else gets to live or die. Humble but special. That's humanity. If we move on, the overwhelming picture of Genesis 2 is of Adam living in paradise. The word Eden means delight. That's what it means. And the picture is of Adam lacking nothing other than one thing we're going to come to later in the chapter. But what we have is Adam made in the image of God, living in perfect harmony with God, totally blessed. But the other thing you see in the picture is that God had a job for humanity to do. And I've called this Adam's basic responsibility. Look with me from verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. There's something really, really important to see there. Even in paradise, we are designed to work. Paradise was not floating around doing nothing. That's not the picture of the Bible. It's not sort of floating around doing whatever you want. Work came before the fall. Work is not a product of sin. It was actually there before the fall. It, it is not good for human beings to be idle. I'm sorry if you're on your 14-week university break or something at the moment. But, but it is not good for human beings to be idle. God made us to be productive. He wants us to work in his creation. Now, we live after the fall. That's, that's next week's passage, chapter 3, when sin enters the equation. And that means our work is often frustrating and sometimes it is really, really hard to see how our work has any value. That is part of living after sin entered the world. Our, our work is, is frustrated. And, and we're right to remember that work shouldn't be the centre of our life. Jesus should be. And we're right to see that Christ is returning and that changes things. And, and so even as we work, we long even more to do what the New Testament calls the work of the Lord and, and to see Jesus' name proclaimed. But even so, our work is valuable. And working hard is one of the ways we glorify God. God honours that. But here in the garden, what was the nature of Adam's responsibility? Do you see the two words there? Look at verse 15, the two words, work it and watch over it. Now, Troy alluded to this last week, but those two words, if you get those two words right, that actually gives us the right view of how we relate to God's creation and the environment. God wants us to work it, to shape it. God wants us to, people don't like this, God wants us to cut down trees and make beautiful furniture. He loves it. He says that's what it's for. God wants us to dig mines and, and discover minerals and work out how to use them so that we can love people and care for people and do wonderful things with them. There's nothing wrong, here I'll be really unpopular, there's nothing wrong with shooting Bambi. There is nothing wrong with killing a feral deer in the Royal National Park because they're not meant to be there. God designed them to be in the Northern Hemisphere. See, I'm being a bit silly, but, but it's ours to rule. This world is ours to rule. And in fact, in fact, doing those sort of things is part of our, the other side of the coin, watching over it. 
And that's the point. God also wants us to watch over his creation. We rule under God, taking responsibility for God's world. See, this is why I think a Christian view, a view informed by the Bible on the environment, will probably keep no one happy. That's my mission in life, to keep no one happy. No. But you see, you'll actually keep neither side of the modern debates happy if you have a biblical view of what we do with the environment. See, if you're all the way with the mining companies, uh, or if you're all the way with the greenies, you are probably not actually letting God's word shape your view of the world. Because on the one hand, Christians should want to challenge the greed of the big mining company that, that strips everything dry to make all these sort of things to just do things that we don't actually need and to meet our consumerist society. We want to challenge that. But then at the same time, we'll turn to the environmentalist and say it's not always wrong to build that dam. Sometimes we need to have water to irrigate the, the world. That's, that's how we produce food for people. And hey, people are more important than animals. Don't forget that. So my point is, when we hold that tension, work the world, but watch over it too, that's when we get it right. But Adam had a much greater responsibility even than that, and it's in verse 16. Come to verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now we'll come more to the two trees next week in chapter 3. That's next week's sermon. But you see here how God gives Adam incredible freedom to enjoy the creation. Uh, and that is still true for us. Eat from any tree. God says, enjoy my creation. God's creation is good, it's to be enjoyed with thanksgiving to God. And that's still the case. But God put one limit on it. Now, what's the point there of God saying, but don't eat the tree of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's saying, don't seek wisdom without listening to God. God's not against knowledge, God loves knowledge. But he's saying, you don't get to decide right and wrong for yourself. Don't think you can decide right and wrong rather than letting God tell you. And that is actually the essence of sin. The essence of sin is to think we get to be the deciders rather than God be the decider of what is right and what is wrong. See, God gives us this wonderful creation to enjoy. His one limit is God remains the king, not us. But we'll get to that next week when we deal with what happens when they do eat from that tree. The point here is our greatest responsibility as human beings is to listen to and submit to the Lord God. That's our greatest responsibility. That brings us to the last part of the passage. I've called it man and woman, God's perfect compliments with an E, not an I. Uh, verses 18 to 25. You see, at this point, Adam is still alone. Uh, and so God says, let's do something about that. Look from verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. Now, what strikes you in that verse? I want you to switch your brain on now, just in case you've switched off a bit. Switch on your brain. Flick back over chapter 1 and chapter... I want you to do some work. Flick back over chapter 1 and chapter 2, because there's actually something incredibly striking that changes in verse 18. It's the first time God says that's not good. Do you see that? Up until now, over and over and over again, 
It said over, God does it and it was good. God said it and it was good. It was good. It was good. It's just over and over again. Now, finally, at this point, God says, this is not good. Now, understand this because people get this wrong and they think this is some sort of funny love story. They sort of think, you know, Adam was wandering around forlorn and lonely like a broken-hearted young fellow like Romeo looking for his Juliet sort of, sort of thing. This is not about how every man needs a good woman. Okay, I just want to make that clear. It's not Adam who sees the problem here. Adam's happy as Larry. It was Adam, but you, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Adam's absolutely fine. It's God who says it's not good. It's God who says something is missing because for humanity to be able to do what God wants, not least fill the earth and subdue it, we need man and woman together. Humanity is not complete without both genders. We need man and woman. And so God forms animals and he brings them to the man. It's important that Adam gets to name them all. That's a way of making that point. Human beings are not like the other animals. We are over the animals. We rule the world under God. We alone are in the image of God. But he gets to the end of them all at verse 20. Look at verse 20 and it says, But for the man, no helper was found as his complement. And so God takes a part of the man and he makes a woman. And she is that helper. She is that complement to the man. She is what's needed to make humanity complete. And so you have Adam's wonderful response in verse 23, which is the high point of the chapter. It says, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now again, it's, it's a play on words in the original language in the Hebrew, which sort of carries into English, where the word woman comes from the word for man. It's like Adam is saying, at last, someone who is like me, but different to me. At last, someone who is the same as me, but different to me. Now, picking up on that point, I want to make a few points about men and women from Genesis chapter 2. Uh, do you see how those two words just get repeated again and again about Eve? Do you see how we read them in verse, I think it was 18, and then verse 20? Helper and compliment. Helper and compliment. Sometimes people see the word helper there, and they think it means that uh, she is subordinate in some way, or, or less equal in some way. That really is very silly, because in Exodus, uh, God is called Moses' helper. And I don't think anyone thinks that, that God is subordinate to Moses. I, I am Avril or Troy's boss, but sometimes I help them do their ministry. No, no, no one thinks at that point that, oh, he's a helper, he's subordinate. In any event, we saw it last week in chapter 1, men and women alike are made in the image of God. That's the heading back in chapter 1. Equally loved, equally valued by God. The, the key word is compliment. Men and women are complements to each other. Our modern world hates this idea. It hates the idea that men and women are different. Your sex is not a social construct. It is a physical and biological reality. Our world has gone insane on this issue. There's no other word for it. Our world has just lost its mind on this issue. 
thinking that because a person doesn't feel like a man or, or feel like a woman, they should undertake drastic action to, to change their, their physical reality, thinking that we can pick and choose what our sex is. That You can't do that. Now, how we approach talking to people about these things, we need to do it with grace and we need to do it with love because often it's real people, sadly, who are caught up by the insanity of our world. But if I can say this, year two science tells you this. Year two science tells you that this, this lunacy is wrong and Genesis 2 is totally consistent with what is obvious to every person who has lived up to people in the last 10 years. Male and female is how God created us equal but different. Now, if you are confused by the modern transgender movement and how to respond as a Christian, can I encourage you to get this book and read it? Uh, It's called The Gender Revolution, A Biblical, Biological and Compassionate Response. It's written by Patricia Wirakun, who is a uh, scientist who uh, specialises in human sexuality and those sort of things and biology, uh, along with a couple of people who are theologians and pastors. And it's just a really helpful book on the science, but also how to respond in a godly way. And I just want to encourage you, that is a book worth reading. I've read it in the last couple of weeks, and I think it's excellent, so it's really worth reading. But back to Genesis chapter 2. This reality that, that men and women are equal but different then flows through the rest of the Bible. It's why men and women have different roles in the church. That's in 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians and other other places. It's why men and women have different roles in the family, as we read in Ephesians chapter 5 and other places. It's why a husband is different to a wife. It's why a father is different to a mother. You you see, and sometimes people just don't like what the Bible says on these things because our world can't handle the idea that people can be equal but different. So they say, oh, it's just cultural. Times have changed. No, the Bible says those differences are grounded in creation. They're there in Genesis 2. Men and women are equal but different. And that's why in some settings, we have different roles and different responsibilities. We complement one another. And again, some people argue that those differences only came about after sin entered the world and and so forth. But no, that's to not understand that two comes before three. Because they're here in Genesis 2 and sin enters the world in Genesis 3. That's a fairly easy one to respond to. And all of that is just a reminder that this is not a teaching to accept reluctantly uh, or to resent. This is a beautiful teaching. God says, this is a part of what is very good. I've not made you all the same. I've made male and female. See, we miss out when we get this wrong. Men and women, equal but different. I said before that this is about much more than marriage. That The point here is less that Adam needed a marriage partner and more that humanity needs male and female to be complete. That's actually just true in our world, it's true in our church. We need male and female to, to be what God wants us to be. See, I think sadly in our modern world, we too often get told that marriage will complete us in some way. As if we're incomplete without a husband or without a wife. Jesus was not married. And Jesus was the perfect human being. I think he was pretty complete. Paul was not married. I think he led a pretty productive life honouring God. And Paul even taught sometimes it is better 
for a Christian to remain single because a person can do more for Jesus that way. That's in 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to explore that some more. My point, though, is Genesis 2 is about much more than marriage, and it's so important to understand that. But at the same time, it does provide us with the Bible's foundation of marriage. And that's how the chapter ends at verse 24. So look there with me. It says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, I'll get the uncomfortable bit out of the way. Where it says that the man and woman become one flesh, it is talking about sex. It's talking about sex. It's talking about that, but it is talking about much more than that. It is talking about sex. God designed us male and female. Our our bodies are designed to fit together. Homosexual practice is not something that God's word can ever countenance as a good thing. It, It just can't countenance it as a good thing. See, sex is designed by God for one man and one woman for life. Sex is to bond a man and a woman together. That's why it is reserved for marriage. When people have sex who are not bonded together by the commitment of marriage, it damages them and it damages our society. But that's a bigger topic for another day. The key picture here, though, of marriage is actually the words leave and bond. Look with me, verses 24 and 25, the words leave and bond. Or if you've got an older translation, leave and cleave, which I prefer because of the rhyming. Uh, And this is vital to understand marriage. When a couple get married, they leave their old family and cleave or bond to this new person. The, The marriage relationship becomes their primary responsibility and loyalty. When someone gets married, our first loyalty, our first responsibility is no longer to our parents. It's no longer to our birth family. It's to this person who we've promised to love and to cherish and protect and honour. So important to understand that. When people in a marriage remain too connected to their parents and remain more loyal to their mum or their dad than to their wife or husband, it damages the relationship. It's not how it's meant to be. And we have to say that unit... The marriage unit is the basic unit of society. We need to protect it. We need to honour it. That's why as Christians we care about what the government does with marriage because when the government messes with marriage, we actually break society down. And I think the last 50 years are evidence of that. Now I want you to remember, this is all before sin entered the world. That's next week, chapter 3. But here we see what marriage is meant to be in verse 25. Victoria and I actually had this passage read at our wedding. I only realised it this morning when I got to church. The two readings tonight were the two passages from our wedding. Uh, But we made the mistake of asking one of my friends, rather than one of Victoria's friends, to read Genesis 2 at the wedding service. And what he did is, when he got to the end and he read verse 25, look at it there, he slowed right down and he read it like this. He said, and both the man and the wife... The pause went for about five seconds... Both the man and his wife, and he looked up, and he went and winked, and said, were naked, yet felt no shame. In all my wedding photos, I'm bright red. (laughs) We need to see that this is actually about more than physical nakedness. It's talking actually about, in a marriage relationship, about an openness and an honesty and a trust where the two people become one. 
where they care for one another, they can share everything and feel no shame. And sadly, yes, now there is the impact of sin, even in marriages, perhaps especially in marriages. But this is still what a healthy marriage should work towards, honesty and transparency and love without shame. But as important as our marriages are, there is a reason we had that New Testament reading from Ephesians chapter 5 before. And that is that all human marriages, what it said is all human marriages actually point forward to an even greater marriage. The marriage of Christ and his church, the marriage of Christ and his people. See, amazingly, whether you are married in this life or whether you are single in this life, even if our marriages here sadly sometimes don't work as they should, we are, if we trust in Jesus, we are a part of the marriage that really matters. What Ephesians 5 tells us is that Jesus is our husband par excellence because he laid his life down for us. And there is no shame in our relationship with Jesus. No shame, not because we've not done anything shameful, we have, we've sinned, but because he has washed us clean by his death on the cross so that he might present us as a perfect bride, pure and blameless. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, that's what that was pointing to. It was pointing to what God was going to do through Jesus. And that is the marriage we want every person to be a part of. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've taught us in Genesis 2. And we pray that we would not understand ourselves through the lens of the world, that we would not listen to what the world has to say to us, but instead we would understand ourselves on the basis of your word. Help us to be humble as people who are made of dust, but at the same time help us to see how special human life is, a gift from your very breath. And Father, help us to rejoice in the fact that you have made us male and female, equal but different made to complement one another and together work in your wonderful world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.